From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Vincent Lewis Carella, and I'm going to read to you from Serpent Box, a story of a boy who was born inside the hollow of an old lynching tree. This tree child, as he was called, was hated by some for how he looked, but loved by others for how he lived. He was a holiness boy. His daddy was a rattlesnake preacher who drank rat poison and kitchen lye to prove their faith was true. Sign followers, they were called, driving the back roads of Georgia and Tennessee to spread their message of faith and a promise of salvation. This boy, he took up the serpents himself until his own faith was tested and he was called back to the place he was born. Some say it was the tree itself calling, crying out for justice and redemption. This boy's name was Jacob Flint, and he was redeemed, and Serpent Box is his story. I'm going to read from a chapter called The Old Glass Woman, which opens in the subconscious of Jacob's father, Charles, in the midst of his very strange dream, on the eve of a great holiness revival where he will attempt for the first time to consume pure strychnine. He does not know this house but it calls out to him. It beckons him to come inside, old and broken as it is, speaking from the dark among the hanging willows with the roof beams all buckled and moss growing thick on the outer walls, and the woods itself reaching out to reclaim the place with green tendrils and sagging vines that seem to be pulling the whole thing back into its living maw. He crawls in through a shattered window to the smell of wet rot and dusty lace, and somewhere beyond the peeling walls and crumbling lath he can hear the sound of the wind. This is a lonely place, this house in the woods, but Charles Flint is not alone. He feels it and he sees it. The house shows signs of a life lived in fear, with scores of candle stubs arranged on the sill above the wainscoting, and a cob pipe with a warm smoking bowl sitting on a beat-up little side table near a wing-backed chair with threadbare arms and a seat cushion stuffed with fresh straw. Beside the pipe is a cup of what appears to be fresh buttermilk, devoid of any mold or scum, and everywhere he looks there are traps. There are traps on the windowsills and on the shelves and on the floor, wire cages of all sizes baited with shiny pork fat and entrails, spring-loaded rat traps with their strike plates sticky with molasses, Indian snares rigged up with twine and other strange devices fabricated of wires and springs and saw blades and nails. No creature larger than a shrew could move about this room unscathed, yet he somehow manages to pass through, stepping into the few bare places with caution, making his way to the door and opening it, and finding the hall dark and blocked with cobwebs and large pieces of hanging plaster. He sees wallpaper decorated with patterns of diving sparrows, clusters of grapes, and something that looks like golden pine cones. The broken lath snows plaster dust onto his shoulders as he wades through it all, thinking that whoever lives here must have to stoop over or be very small to get through, and he moves with great stealth through this passage narrowed by neglect, passing boarded-up rooms with their doors nailed shut or closed off entirely, with planks crudely nailed over them, moving toward a light that is burning at the far end of the hall, where he finds a treacherous staircase with almost no step left intact, 
a staircase spiraling down into more darkness, down too far for this small house in the wetlands. He goes down and down, slowly, cautiously, descending through a great shaft cut through the earth until he is standing in a room much like the one he came in through, a room with a window and a shiny black sewing machine and a chair, but with many more traps and elaborate snares set about. The wind blows through stained curtains where bright yellow sunlight filters through dust-frosted glass, and he thinks, how can there be sun here in this chamber that is surely deep underground? But before he can answer, something comes at him from a dark corner and clasps onto his neck with claw-like fingers in the grip of the damned, a demon of savage strength whose face he cannot recognize until they both spin into the light, and then he sees that it's an old woman, and he's terrified to discover that she's made entirely of glass. He strikes her upon the side of the head, but she's as solid as jade and weighs far more than he does, and they tip over. Suddenly they are falling, crashing through the floors to even lower regions of this bottomless house where the same themes repeat over and over in the wallpaper. Birds on the wing, clusters of fruit, and something like an artichoke set within a crown of laurel and thorns. He falls down through this house laden with gadgets that hang from the walls of the shaft, snares made of wire and coated with dust as thick as fur and greasy to the touch so that he cannot grasp onto anything to break his fall. He slides right off and he falls and falls, spinning with the old glass woman, and then he wakes. There above him the heavens turn, ten thousand particles of spinning light, the cold darkness of space pulling an old broken house back into its living maw. And what does the starlight tell him that the dream does not? There is no beginning and there is no end to the dream and that from which the dream has sprung. So that the falling is arising and the descent a nostalgic review and the old glass woman is but a form of selfish pride who will not abide him any longer. She will cast him down and the vanity of it all will consume his very flesh. His faith will fail him. His son will capture the light. There will be naught but darkness to receive the deadly thing, and man will be man again, pageless, wordless, and circumscribed by common fate and the weakness of bone and blood. Under the light, under the stars, under the only thing he sees that he can call by name as God, he makes his confessions to the sea of night with the clear understanding that the trick of time is nothing more than a certain point of view. The great celestial bodies in their three-minute waltz, ever shining, a shower of old sparks that fall like snow upon the quanta. Man, and he among them, nothing dies, no thing dies. It is but a change in oscillation, a chord shift, a new spin, and thus spins Charles W. Flint in the last of his rotations, and his mind travels beneath the stars, for him such a great distance, back to a place in the hills above Leatherwood, when his young brother Garvey was fair to look upon, and clear of mind and eye, and they ran through the woods when they were boys in love with each other for being each other, and the trees and the sun conspired to trick them into believing that it would never end, so that the days of that summer were each their own full lives, complete with births and deaths and sorrow and joy, and the bond of brotherhood was unspoken but fully known to them, as they sat idle in trees and waited knee-deep in creeks on hunts for anything strange 
and shiny they could pocket, and save for contemplation back in the arms of the trees again, holding in their palms what treasures the world did yield, what things a boy would wonder. You hold on to what you can for as long as you can hold it. Poor Garvey, he says. He never did believe in dreams. If only he could sit with him again. If only he had welcomed him back. They will see each other in the land of the old glass woman. They will sit upon the banks of the stream and skip stones. Again. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. For more information on Serpent Box, including character profiles, more stories, and a history of the holiness movement, please visit serpentbox.com. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.